How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the Chop Fit. Over the course of the past year, the Chop Fit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourselves as well. If you use this code, SpearChop10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SpearChop10 for $10 off your Chop Fit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today we are welcoming back two of our more popular guests, uh, the incredible uh, former ATF agents, Jay Dobbins and Lou Veloze. Uh, gentlemen, after the episodes aired already, we got more questions about people that really had no idea the in-depth work you did as undercover agents um, and the hardships and the triumphs you had with that. Um, so without further ado, I just want to welcome you guys both here. Uh, glad to see you guys are safe and healthy. Uh, and we got a lot to talk about today. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, brother. And so I kind of want to jump into it. I know it's been a year or so since I've talked to you, Jay and Lou. You were, I record with you a couple months back. Um, but a lot has happened in the world today. And um, I just kind of want to jump in. Like, how have you been, Jay, the last year I talked to you? How's the football stuff going? How is your life? Uh, in terms of everything going on right now. Yeah, thank you, man. It's uh, football's going great. I've, uh, for those that aren't aware, I've pretty much stepped away from everything law enforcement entirely to coach a high school football team. And uh, I've tried to uh, bring the same passion to my kids that I'm coaching that I did to my job as a federal agent. So, you know, it's, it's the, the passion and the emotion and all those things that, that like guys like Lou and myself apply to our job, just apply it to a high school football team. Now, to kind of dig into that, is that something easy for you to kind of transition from who you were, your passion for the law enforcement to a football coach or to a new author, Lou? Like, how do you guys kind of take that same passion and kind of push it forward into something new? You know, there's... There's so many similarities between uh, what Lou and I did for a living and sports and team sports. Um, the, the overlaps are amazing. And, and I think Lou will uh, back me up on this is a lot of the people that are the most successful lawmen, uh, definitely uh, the highest achiever alpha dog undercover agents they have, they have a couple common denominators. Most of them were involved either in athletics, team sports, or the military. And the common denominator is, is that you're a part of something that's bigger than yourself. You are a piece of it. You're a part of it. But the, the, the objective, the mission, is much greater than the individual. And that's, that's a football team. That's a high school football team. That's a sports team. That's a military operation. That's undercover. Love it. Yeah. You know, I, uh, bird is spot on there. I, uh, it's amazing. I don't, I don't know many, uh, guys or girls who are still on the job because everybody I know who came in, uh, with me before me and even some after me, uh, they've all retired and left the job. You know, I think the climate has gotten a lot worse. Um, but like Bird says, it, it was such a team sport. Uh, I do not miss the job. And I think Bird will probably back, back me on that. But like the old saying goes, you know, I don't miss the circus, but I miss the clowns. Right. 
it is, and I know we've talked about when you both wrote it before about the whole movement for defund police and this whole media driven uh, attack on police officers. And I do love your comparison there where it's like, it's, if I'm a, if I want to be, be, become a cop or a member of law enforcement, I want to be recruited. I want to be brought to a team. But if I have captains retiring early because they don't want, they don't enjoy their higher ups or the, the politics of it, or if I can't bring other young rookies in with me, how do you kind of, is there a turning point that needs to happen here where law enforcement agencies, whether it's state, local, federal, whatever it is, can kind of kind of rebuild those team aspect again? Well, I mean, I can tell you this, um, and this is my personal opinion. Uh, you know, it all starts with leadership. And, you know, unfortunately, Jay and I work for an agency that just notoriously has had terrible leadership. And that continues to this day. And, you know, everything, everything comes from the top down. And, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an insider for sure anymore, but, you know, I still talk to people and I still have, uh, have somewhat of a, you know, I'm still in touch with some people and, and the leadership situation has only gotten worse. And uh, it's hard to recruit and it's hard to motivate uh, when your priorities aren't, aren't right. And our leadership's priorities are, they're in the wrong place right now. You know, uh, Lou and myself both had, uh, I don't know what terms to use, uh, like probably unglamorous or unglorious exits from the agency. And I'll tell you why. Um, like our common denominator and some other people's involved is that Lou's a guy, when he sees something wrong, when he sees something that he's uncomfortable with, that he knows in his heart isn't right, he's going to say something about it. He's going to do something about it. And that personality doesn't fit in the machine. The people that are the bosses want you to just nod your head and go along and not question their decisions or their methods or, or any of the uh, aspects of their job. So you, you got people with personalities like Lou's or like myself, when you see something wrong, it's our nature to do something about it, to step up and challenge it. And that will get you beheaded in a lot of agencies. Like they'll just cut you off versus listen to what your opinion or your thought is. It's it really is sad. And for those that haven't read uh, Catching Hell or No Angel, Jay, you dig into the death threats towards the end of your career and the, your agency wasn't defending you. And Lou, obviously with your book coming out, we, you're going to talk about your how the agency didn't really get your back and a lot of stuff. Um, it's disheartening that you guys dedicate your lives, 10, 20, 30, 40, whatever it is, these agents like yourselves, men and women, that dedicate themselves to do some really dirty work that's necessary to get rid of evil. And when your time is up, they call your number. It's like, you know what? I'm done with Jay. I'm done with Lou. Who's next up in the deli line? And I don't... From the outsider looking in, I don't know how I comprehend how you guys were, like, I would be so upset and so mad that all this life and the sacrifice, whether it's family and this mental issues I've had, the physical issues I've had, to be thrown out like that. If you guys kind of touch upon that again, because I think it's very important that people, especially like someone that can listen to this now that wants to be ATF or DEA or, or another three-letter agency, that might be kind of be like, you know what? What, if I look up to someone like Jay or Lou or another undercover agent, if they're going to get thrown out like they are, what, why am I going to put 20 years into something that I'm not going to be respected for? 
Go ahead, Bird. You take that one. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you what, and 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 um, you know, I'm a big fan of Lou Velosi, um, and and of the person, of the man, of the character, um, and of his work. And so, uh, part of that is 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 that there's a lot about both of us that overlaps and is similar. So, I, I'm going to tell you like my aspect or, or my experience with that and where my mistake was is that I love my job and the people that I did it with so much that I went all in and abandoned pretty much every other aspect of my life. And I did it as hard as I could, the best I could for as long as I could. But what happens when those people that you're trying to please and you're trying to serve no longer like you, no longer want you around, no longer have a need for you. You've given everything to them. You've given them everything. And it's very easy for them to step away from you and it leaves you with nothing. And then you look at yourself, you're like, man, I gave you everything. And now, like, I've abandoned my family. I was, a, I was a terrible husband. I was a terrible father. And I justified it to myself because I felt like I was out serving a greater good. And in the end, like, not only did my agency abandon me and friends and people that I loved, people that I would step in front of a bullet for, step away from me, but I also alienated my family and friends in exchange for that. That's a sad story, man. It's pathetic. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. Yeah, you know, I, I can add to that. Uh, once, once that kind of thing happens, you know, and and Bird Bird told me this years ago, and uh, man, it is so true. First of all, there is no they or them. Like when you're when that happens to you, when you're and you're like disgusted and furious uh, with the system. And, you know, you're, you know, guys like us, you know, we want revenge, we want vengeance, and, you know, I'm going to get them, you know, they screwed me over. But like, you know, Burr told me there is no they, they, it's just, it's just the chair that rotates um, up in a tall building somewhere constantly rotating, like they don't care. Uh, they are always changing. So once, once something like that happens uh, to your career, the worst thing you can do is to live the rest of your life with a chip on your shoulder and, you know, trying to get revenge uh, because, and we've said it before, we've said it a million times, really the only revenge when you get screwed over by the government is to go out there and live a great life. That's the only revenge because you're not going to get back at, at them. No, it, it is really cool. The aspect because you guys are, Jay, you put the two books out. I know your new books coming out uh, next month or December, Lou. And so, is part of your kind of revenge, I guess, from that aspect. You know what? I'm going to tell my story, how it affected my life. Obviously, I'm going to protect the sanctity of class or classified information. I get that. But this is almost a first step for you, Lou, uh, where I can kind of get my story out there to maybe help someone else who could fall into these pratfalls. Is that, is that my, am I reading that right, Lou? Yeah, absolutely. And again, and you know, this is, this is stuff that Bird has already said, but you know, I, I don't put, I don't want to be that bitter guy, that angry guy with a chip on his shoulder. And, you know, I don't blame them or I don't blame management or the U.S. attorney's office for my problems that I had at the end of my career. 
I blame me for my problems I had. You know, I was out there running all over the country. You know, Sal Nunziato was running all over the country trying to trying to save the world when Lou Velozzi was neglecting his priorities, the things that were important, just like just like Bird said. And so, you know, I'm not bitter and I'm not angry. Uh, I'm just laying it out and telling a, a crazy story about a wild ride, man. You know, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. But I, I have major regrets. But I wouldn't change a thing. Right. You know, you know I, I'll add on to, to what Lou said is that to do the job the way Lou did it and to accomplish the things the way Lou did it, and, and I'm using him as my example. If you're not all in, if you treat it like a hobby or a gimmick or if you treat it like something cool to do, like a cool assignment, that's the quickest way to get dead. You have to be all in and you have to be all in all the time. There's no, there's no uh, nine to five. You have to live that personality and you have to live that lifestyle and embrace it to be great and to be successful and, it, and then it begins to absorb you. And when you do it over a long period of time, I know my flaw was uh, Jay Davis, Jay Bird, stopped becoming what I did for a living and he became who I was. Cool. And that personality and that person was there all the time. When I was at home, when I was with my kids, you know, I get, there's, there's one story, I came home, I'd been on the road for an extended period of time and I was just being me. And my wife said to me, you cannot be gone and walk in this house and treat us like we're people on the street. And then in my self-defense, I was like, man, I've got a light switch. I can't turn this on and off. And then her response was, when you come to this house, you better install a dimmer switch and dial that personality down. And if you can't, don't come back. Wow. Yeah. John, I tell you right now, you know, the smartest guys who did this, uh, the smartest guys to me, Bird, were guys like like Blake and like Daryl, like Foot, who went all in for a period of time and then walked away. Uh, you know, Bird and I, you know, I don't know, we couldn't do that for whatever reason. But those those are the smart guys, the guys who were great for a period of time. And then they walked off the field with their arms up in the air like Costanza. But you here's know? the thing, Lou, and I think you'll back me up on this. Those guys were good at other things. They had other skills. They were able to translate, you know, uh, and, 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 and create themselves as a different tool to put in the toolbox. Like Lou and myself, like we were pretty much good at one thing and it was running that hustle. And we ran it from the beginning to the dirty bitter end. Well, I'll say this as, as Lou uh, settles his, his uh, techno glitch there. And so, in these in these uh, opening comments, we've we've uh, highlighted some of the issues we have. But but I know Lou and I know his heart, and we've had this conversation. We both love ATF. We love our agency, and we love the men and women out there with their boots on the ground who are out there trying to do the job. So to get back to your question, like how do you find the next Lou Belosi? Like the dude is out there. That, that girl is out there, um, but they almost have to self-identify. You have to uh, 
press the issue and volunteer into those assignments and take low level elements of an operation of an undercover operation and then follow a little Velozzi around and see what he does and see what he how he acts and how he operates and what turns some people off the glamour the miami vice type mentality of like the cool look riding in the cool car going to an undercover storefront dealing with gangsters like that part of it is glamorous what they don't see is the is the, the back side of that all the work, all the effort, all the energy that goes in to put yourself in a position to just have that opportunity. Not everybody has that. There's a lot of people out there that can run a good game, but they don't have the energy or the intellect to put together and run like Lou did a storefront from top to bottom. Not only being the operator and being the point man that's standing there doing the deals, but doing all the dirty work that's never seen or never heard of or never credited that allows you to just be in the position to have that opportunity. Not everybody's got that in. I, I think another uh, aspect about you asking about recruits and all that is the times have definitely changed since, since when uh, Jay and I were running the streets, um, you know, at, at times, you know, Jay and I were allowed to, to really run free. And, uh, and run our game and do what we did. And, you know, those days are over, you know, times have changed. And I'm not just talking about ATF, I'm talking about all agencies. And, and of all agencies, ATF's probably has always been the loosest uh, when it came to that. But, you know, Jay and I were able to run almost unchecked on a lot of our cases and, and do what we had to do, uh, you know, with our, our tactics and, and running our hustle. But I, I don't see that ever happening again or coming back around unless there's a serious change in our society. I don't think the opportunities for any new recruits will be the same as it was for, for you know, guys like Jay and I and a ton of guys who came before us when, you know, we were essentially just given a pass. Uh, here you go, you know, do your thing and just bring back some good results, put some food on the table. I think some of those, the, the, the glory days of undercover work, like Lou said, are long gone. And, and we were fortunate enough to get in under the wire when it was still hot and heavy, and, and you were still given freedom to go out and operate and do your job. But, you know, like, like from this, in the theme of this recruit question, there's a, a, a vision, a vibe that undercover work is sexy and glamorous. All you got to do is just look a little bit behind that curtain and it's anything but that. It's a nasty, dirty, bloody, vomit-covered scab of a life. And a lot of people get intrigued by, by this vision of what it is, but the reality of what it is, once they get a taste of that, now they decide, nah, you know what, I'll do something else. I know that mental health is a hot topic as it should be for a lot of whether you're an athlete or whoever you are uh police officer military mental health is very super important and so when you guys first started and you have to deal with say uh a, a shooting or whatever it is uh was did, did you as you as you progressed in your career did you notice that the department did more for mental health or was this one of these things where and I can go back to when I was in high school where there was no, there's a guidance counselor, but it was never encouraged to go there. As a male, I never felt like I needed to tell someone outside my parents, like, oh, I'm having a tough, like, I never got mental health. 
but as you see suicides raise and especially the last two years and this type of stuff that happens do departments do enough for the mental health aspect today versus when you guys first started was it one of those things where it's like oh it's like locker room mentality like oh just get out there rub some dirt in it you're fine your mind doesn't need to heal you know when you ask if they do enough you know i i don't think so i i'm a big believer in peer peer review and your, your peers having an organization to come in because I, you know, when I, when I get done with a two year undercover operation, you know, I don't really want to talk to some shrink somewhere. I want to talk to guys like Jay Dobbins who've been there, who've done that, who can counsel me, give me their advice and tell me stories about how it affected them. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know. I think ATF has been okay. was okay with that. Um, you know, but there's always that taboo, man. There's always that taboo, uh, when you're, especially you're an undercover agent uh, with admitting something's getting to you, uh, you know, admitting that weakness, um, you know, and it's on top of that fear that, you know, is my agency going to pull my gun and badge if I admit that maybe things aren't quite right up here, you know? Right. When you look at, um, when you do undercover work for an extended period of time, and I'm talking about years upon years a career of that you like lying and deception it's it just it just becomes who you are and you start lying and deceiving yourself about who you are and like there there are formal peer support programs that that are valuable but like in this deep cover deep infiltration world that there's like a, a, an informal fraternity that exists there. And those people are their best peer support for each other because they're truly the only ones that can understand it and relate it and explain it. You know, one of the, one of the best, uh, a, a very good friend of, of Lou's is, is an ATF agent, retired ATF agent named Chris Bayless, who was um, arguably, uh, the best, if, if, if not one of the best undercover operators uh, that, that, that ever wore a badge. Um, and, and as amazing as the work that he did on the street as an undercover agent, his, his work in helping other agents like understand the problems and get through the problems, the emotional, mental aspect of the job was, in my opinion, just as valuable or or maybe more valuable. It's like the, the gift that keeps on giving was his ability to relate his experiences and his successes and his failures to his peers and at least help them understand what they were going through and where they were at. Would you talk about the t idea of like betrayal and how you have to be when you're undercover, you have to get whatever, get people off the street. And so every time you do an arms deal or buy drugs or whether it's storefront or you're in a, a motorcycle club and something goes down and you have to betray that person. How difficult is it to shake yourself with that one, that betrayal right there uh, and then move on to the next in character as Sal, as whoever, but as those betrayals build up, does that kind of get towards the end of your career where it's like, man, I can't take any more of this because not only am I betraying myself, but these people that 
some of these people, yeah, they're bad guys, but they're not bad people. And when those betrayals add up, how does that weigh on you guys as individuals? You know, was it difficult when I was doing it? No, nope, not at all. Um, but I think it does build up, you know, builds up in, inside you. It accumulates over time. Uh, because, you know, while, while I was doing it, while Jay was doing it, man, I, I buried everything, man. It was, you know, at the end of one of my long-term operations, the only thing on my mind was the beginning of my next one. Wow. So, you know, everything just gets buried, man. And all, you know, the betrayals, the relationships you form, like you said, you know, I mean, Jay and I have sat down with countless, uh, you, if you want to say bad guys, defendants, whatever they are, and, and had long talks. And, and there's some good aspects to these guys, right? I mean, nobody is pure evil. Very few people are pure. And so, so there's good aspects to them. And, and you develop these relationships. And yeah, then there's that betrayal, right? Usually we weren't around when the cuffs went on. We're long gone at that point. Uh, you know, but you've you got to see him in court at some point, usually, and, and there is that betrayal factor. But, you know, I justified it. I said, listen, I just probably made the world a little safer by locking this guy up. He's putting right. guns on the street. Uh, he's selling a lot of drugs. He's putting pipe bombs on the street, whatever. Uh, but, you know, that that's the special agent, you know, justifying that. But then just like we were burying everything else in our undercover persona and not really addressing things as Jay Dobbins, as Lou Velozzi, you know, all that builds up. And at some point there's a reckoning, right? Always. Betrayal is, is such a powerful emotion for all of us, right? And so as an undercover operator, you're, you're opening up your relationship with a lot. You're pretending to be someone you're not and you're doing it cold. And then over the course of time, you begin to build trust. And then that trust turns into loyalty. And then oftentimes the loyalty actually evolves into love where the people you're working on fall in love with this, this false persona that you're, that you're selling them. All along, you know, you are going to betray them. You are going to break their heart. You are going to humiliate them because they trusted you. They were loyal to you. They loved you. And you're going to tell all their dirt, dirty, dark and dirty secrets, you know, for everyone to hear. Um, and so we, we never completely can eliminate the human condition, the human factor. That's, that's, that's hard to do knowing you're going to betray someone. It's hard to be betrayed. And, and as you, and like, you're spending time with people, you're not always in the middle of a murder for hire or a home invasion or a gun or a drug deal or, or exchanging bonds with someone. You're spending time with them on a personal level and you're, you're eating with them. They're sleeping at your house. You're sleeping at their house. You're holding their babies. You get to know their families, their kids, their wives, their girlfriends. And you know, like everything about you, at some point, you are going to crash all of that. You're going to ruin all of that for that person. Um, that, that's, that's hard. But at the same time, it's like, look, if you're not doing anything wrong, if you're not doing anything violent, then, then me and you aren't sitting here talking to you about, about it right now. Right. Yeah. You know, I, one of my, I don't know about Bird, but I never, like, I, 
I never enjoyed that that moment when I had to go to court and face this guy who I had built up a relationship with and look him in the eyes. I didn't enjoy that. Um, I, you know, I, I used to get that feeling in my stomach. It was that same feeling when you were a young guy. And I didn't want to break up with my girlfriend. I felt the same way. I'd rather just avoid her till she got the till she got the hint rather than face her like a man and break up with her. That was that same feeling I would get, you know, going into court with this guy who I'd hung out with for a year or however long, right? And then him looking me in the eyes and that whole betrayal uh, coming out. And, you know, I'd say one, one time that really like came to a head was, uh, like I said, usually like Bird and I, we would be gone by the time the cuffs went on. But uh, there was a case I did up in Chicago where uh, a guy was a member of the outlaw motorcycle gang. And he was also uh, a member of the Italian mafia, the outfit up there. And uh, this one got real personal. And after about a year uh, of me hanging with this guy, uh, you know, they wanted me to get him to a hotel room at the Chicago airport uh, for the takedown, you know, and I had to like bring him up myself. And uh, it was the whole guys was that I was going to introduce him to this Hoist Gracie, this famous jujitsu guy. And, uh, and he brought his son with him. And the guy was a good father. And he brought his like 11 or 12 year old son with him. And, uh, you know, when, when I walked him in the room, obviously Hoist Gracie wasn't there. There was a bunch of ATF and FBI agents with all the evidence in the room. And he at first wouldn't believe, you know, that I was an undercover agent. So they made me go in back into the room. They stopped the interview and made me go back into the room to show him my badge and all that. And, uh, you know, that it was hard for me. And, yeah. you know, so I looked at him and you know what I said? I said, hey, man, listen, I said it. It wasn't personal, man. It's, it's professional. It's a job. And he looked at me and he goes, it wasn't personal? Really? And, oh. you know, I felt I, it. Uh, I had a similar experience where I, like, ultimately was brought in to confront uh, a suspect who was under arrest who wouldn't believe that I was an agent. And I came in and showed him my badge. And um, it... it it was it was hard because he said, you know what? He said, right now, I've known you for two years. And right now in this very moment is the only time you've ever told me the truth. And he's like, I would have stepped in front of a bullet for you. Um, you never get rid of the human factor. You, you, like, how, like, how does a human being feel good about that? Like, you have the satisfaction of completing your investigation successfully. But that takes the edge off of it, man. That, that like, and like Lou was saying, like he never mocked people that he arrested. That you've already humiliated them, you've already tricked them, you've already deceived them. And a lot of times, you're seeing these people at the very lowest point of their life, and you are responsible for bringing them there. It's hard to find satisfaction as a human being in that. One of the uh, other topics that I want to talk about is the idea of attention to detail. Obviously, you create these characters, whether it's Sal or you're undercover. Everything you do has to kind of, you have to maintain everything, remember everything you said, every action you took has to be part of this character. How hard is it, though, to, to not get in the mix up where you deal with one group of people and literally a year later you see someone in another group, like you still have to remember what you did before but how hard is that to kind of 
build that persona? Is it something where you do it for so long that you be, obviously you become Sal, right, Lou? And so you know everything he's already done, everyone he's called, everyone he's tipped to the bar, all that type of stuff. But before you guys first jump undercover, is that kind of scary for you that you could really, you could end up dead by one mistake, one way you hold, you present yourself? You know, I, for me, and I'm sure it was the same way for Bird, never scary. Uh, there was nothing about it that ever really scared me. It was what I wanted to do, and I loved it so much. Uh, anxiousness, maybe sometimes, but but never never fear because I was doing what I loved, and and you know I got into it so much, and just like Jay said, you know right from the beginning, after a few years went by, um, you know I was believing my own bullshit in my undercover persona. I was really believing it, and it was not difficult you know, for me to remember everything and every little detail, um, because I, I was living it, you know, I, I was, and it sounds corny, it sounds dramatic, but it really is the truth. You, you buy into your own bullshit so much, you start becoming, just like Jay said, you start becoming a little bit more of your undercover persona than you are your real self, you know, and that keeps you sharp. That's, maybe it's a survival tool or survival instinct, but I, you know, I lived it. I believe my own bullshit, which probably helps. Right. There's um, th th there's there's a couple different uh, theories on how to handle an undercover operative. There's agencies that will let guys work undercover for a limited amount of time, and then they rotate them out of those assignments because they know what the what the end game can be when you do it too long, right? So those guys spend a window of time in this undercover persona and then they're back out to something else, which has a value. The argument to that, and, and I think Lou and myself fell victim to that, is that we never rotated out of that. Um, but here's the thing. If you have a two, three, four year window to work undercover, right when you're hitting your stride, you're really getting great. You're doing those things that Lou talked about where you just believe that person and you can sell that person to anybody. Right when you're at your peak, now you're being pushed out of the assignment. Now, if you're allowed to continue, you can do amazing things as an operator, but the personal damage that's taking place is, is huge. It's immense. I got to the point, like even with my family, with my wife and my kids, the simplest question that they would ask me that I could respond to with a simple, honest answer, I had to spin a lie on it because that's all I knew how to do was to lie. How often did you both run into each other when you guys were running the streets? Like, is this something where, uh, I mean, obviously you're both from the same agency, but how many people were there undercover at the time? working certain groups of stings or whatever they were, like, would you guys interact with each other in character? Like, how would that ever come about? Or does it actually ever happen? Well, you know, it, uh, you know, geographically, uh, Bird and I were in, I was the East Coast, right. it was more West Coast. Um, but I will tell you this, um, you know, I was kind of like that freshman, uh, because Jay and, and a bunch of those guys were several years ahead of me. Um, and I was kind of like that freshman who came in and like was lucky enough to get a spot on the varsity team. And, and those senior all-stars, you know, were Jay Dobbins, uh, the other guy he's talking about, Chris Bayless, and, and a whole John Carr, a whole series of guys. So, you know, I was, 
I was lucky enough to see how these guys operate. Um, you know, and I was lucky enough to get called by these guys to come out and help. And, and I tell you one thing that always stays in my mind was when Jay called me out, uh, this, this is in the late nineties, a long time ago, uh, and a bunch of other guys to help out on a great case. He was working. I, I remember watching him. Okay. And, uh, you know, I already had a great undercover, uh, training agent. Okay. But, you know, now I was getting a little bit more, um, exposure to some of these, you know, these guys who are on the kind of the national scene. And I remember watching Jay as, as we went and we did a, a series of deals as he would go, you know, he'd buy a bunch of pipe bombs, you know, from this crew and, there wasn't, there was no celebration or, or no chest pounding. He's right back to the office on his computer, writing out that report while it's fresh in his mind, downloading, you know, downloading the audio and all that. And, you know, I remember the, his attention to detail, you know, how he covered everything and, and that kind of helped form me, you know, and it was the other guys too, you know, there's guys who were good undercover agents, but they were kind of one trick ponies, you know, that's what they did. But, Jay was a total agent. He could be the case agent, the undercover agent, do the paperwork because, you know, we talk about the undercover stuff we did. That was a minority of it. I mean, they don't show the paperwork, the grind, right? You know, the waiting around, uh, right. the gathering everybody up, all of that stuff, man, there's so much to it. So in my opinion, what I saw from Jay and these other guys, if you to be a truly great undercover agent, you have to be well-rounded. You got to be good with everything. The paperwork's got to be tight. And, you know, tag on that, I think talent recognizes talent. And, and, and to, to dovetail with an earlier statement is that the people that, when, when Lou and myself were operating, the little fraternity of agents we had, they were very quick and eager to drop what they were doing and come and help someone else and plug in in a role in an investigation. Um, and like back way back in the day when I was brand new, there was a group of undercover agents who had this mentality that they would like kind of sit at their desk with their cowboy boots on the desk and say, hey, when you need some operating done, you throw me the keys to the vet and I'll go bring it home for you. And that's where it began and ended for them. But then with our generation, the, the professionalism of undercover work was elevated, where guys like Chris Bayless, Johnny Carr, Richie Zayas, um, some of the really elite guys, like the Mount Rushmores of undercover work were complete agents. And like if, if anybody out there, when, when you can buy a news book storefront that's coming out, you need to buy that book because it, it tells so much more of what goes on other than just out there smoking and joking with gangsters. The backstory of the professionalism of undercover work is captured in that book probably better than any other document that's ever been produced. When it, uh, and before we talk about the, the book, uh, interesting, I just came to be the idea of the code of ethics. Obviously, the ATF itself has its own code for all the officers and agents, whoever. But the undercover part, does that code of ethics change? Or is there, does it, like, what point does it become kind of, hey, now you can do this or that? Like, is there something specific to the undercover 
ethically that allows you to kind of be a different person than say the umbrella of the actual ATF itself? John, the way I would answer that question is, is that there is undercover, especially long-term undercover work is a gray area. I mean, it, right. is, it is not black or white, it is pure gray. Um, and it is situational. So ethically speaking, um, first and foremost, the most important thing to us always was that in any situation, you know, our, our partner, if we had one and ourselves that we went home alive, right? right. So th that was always first and foremost, was that it, the good guys, you know, we went home alive. And, and so, you know, there are so many different different situations that you end up in right and ones that you didn't plan on ending up in but you end up in these situations whether you know conversations transactions um just hanging out situations where you have to make a call in a split second where you have to first of all you have to maintain your credibility you know with these pipe hit and bad guys okay you got to maintain your street cred all right you have to avoid breaking a law that will bring the right. case down and maybe get you prosecuted, right? You have to avoid saying the wrong thing or not saying the right thing, okay? There are so many factors in that split second decision because of this situation you find yourself in that, you know, the last thing usually that you're thinking about is, you know, well, is this ethically proper, right? You know, first of all, you're thinking, I wanna get out of here alive, right? I wanna, I wanna keep the case going, secondly, you know, I don't want to break into us. I don't want to do anything stupid that's going to ruin the case. I want to keep this case going. I, I've been in for seven months. You know, I don't want it all to go down because I'm about to make the wrong decision. So I think that question about ethics is it's very deep and it's it's very difficult to answer because the situations are always different. And you have to make a split second decision in a totally gray area. You know, the the, the laws. Are, are very steadfast and the, and the best operators like toe the line and adhere to the laws, right? That's, that's, that's part of the game. And if you can't do that, then you're not a very good undercover operator. If you can't play within the laws. Just beneath those, when we talk about morals and ethics are policies and procedures, right? And so probably a big part of my downfall is that I took ATF's policies and procedures, and rather than view them as rules, I viewed them as suggestions. This is kind of, you know, and that was the wrong mentality to take. And so I got myself in a lot of trouble on my own, like Lou said, I own my mistakes by violating policies and procedures, not laws, policies and procedures, that got me in trouble administratively. And I'll tell you part of the reason why is because the people that make the policies and procedures, they sit behind a desk with a necktie on and monogrammed shirts and cufflinks on their, on their sleeves who've never done the job and are gonna tell people who are out there operating what you can or cannot do. And I was like, it doesn't work that way. Like Lou said, it's a very spontaneous, fluid world, and you're making life and death decisions in a split second. So if that decision 
happens to violate a policy or procedure made by someone that I have zero respect for, I'm going to do what I have to do. And I will deal with you afterwards, or more likely, they will deal with me afterwards, which very typically was an extended amount of time on the beach with no pay, trying to teach me my lesson. Right. Amen. Now, you mentioned, obviously, Jay, Lou's new bookstore for coming out in December. Lou, would you obviously put this put together and you're anxious, you're excited to put this out. Do you reach out to someone like Jay, who's written two amazing books already, uh, to, for kind of advice? Or how do you kind of get the, I don't know if courage is the right word, but it is, it is something, it says a lot about you to put your story out of pen to paper. A lot of people don't, don't even have the heart to do that. And so you're willing to do that. But do you talk to someone like Jay, who's lived the same kind of life you have before well, you do your... I mean, it's needless to say that Jay was was my inspiration to write book because I had already bought and read both of his books. Yep. And and, and you know now Jay's experience uh, in the book he wrote about is totally different than my experience in the book that I'm putting out. But you know the similarity between Jay and I was that I'll use this term again. Neither one of us were one trick ponies. You know, there was guys who were biker guys. That's what they did. Um, you know, and there was guys who were gang guys, street gang guys, and that's what they did. But Jay and I share uh, a similarity in that we we did everything. Um, we didn't say no, which probably to our detriment. We didn't say no to anything. We were both very well-rounded. I mean, murder for hire, uh, gang infiltrations, mafia infiltrations, biker stuff, whatever it was, we would do it. Um, and, and I think that's kind of a testament. Uh, but just as Jay, Jay just picked one aspect of his career, you know, to write about. Um, he could have, there's probably 20 other cases he could have chosen from. He picked that one and it worked really well. And I, so, you know, after reading Jay's book, I did the same, you know, I picked one and, and it's one that has never been written about or, or a movie, a TV show, anything about before these secret storefront operations. Um, Jay was the first person I called to get a, a quote you know, in a blurb for the cover. Right. Of the, book. Um, the other guy that I called was uh, two guys were Steve Murphy and Javier Pena, the DEA Narcos guys. Um, so, and I had already read their book as well. So absolutely, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, I read a bunch of books uh, from, I, I read Big Jack Garcia's book, which was a phenomenal book. Yes. Um, and, you know, you, so you take all those and they're always in the back of your mind. And, you know, I wrote a lot in my book. You read a lot about my team, uh, the team that I use, you know, and these were guys, local guys that I use in, in my area that were that were a team that I used throughout these uh, storefront cases. And, you know, it's just amazing. It's like like Jay was talking about these guys. You know, if I was a multimillionaire, I would love there's about 25 guys. Right. Jay Dobbins, I, I could list about 25 guys who I would love, I would pay for all their flights and just get them in a room. Everyone at the same time, well, you know, while everyone's still alive, get all these guys in the same room. And John, if you were there and could see these guys and could interact with all of them, I guarantee the one thing you would come out with when you walked out of that room is that these guys are all borderline genius. Yeah. In, the same, in the same way that like the great comedians are all borderline genius, but they're all a little bit fucked up, right? In yep. their, you know, there's a high suicide rate with, with genius comedians and, and early death rate. Same thing with great undercovers, borderline genius, but we kind of run our personal lives into the ground. A lot of similarities. Right.
you know, I'll tell you when, when Lou started working on storefront and, and I'll say this again, um, like go, go buy that book, go get online, go to your bookstore and buy storefront by Lou Pelosi because it's a great book. And I think every time a book is written, every new book, in my opinion, seems to be better than the last one. So this is the new book that's out there. In my opinion, this is the best book that's out there. But when we were talking about it and talking about like, like how do I consolidate and tell this story of my life and my experiences? The one piece of advice I had to Lou, um, which he embraced, and you'll see it when you read his book, is just be honest. Tell the truth. Because not, you look at some of the older books, they're complete. I love me, pat myself on the back, stories. I did everything right. Everything was dangerous. And, and I, I smoked it every single time. The reality of it is, is that doesn't happen. It doesn't go like that. There's mistakes and there's flaws and there's failures and there's errors. And if you are willing to let your ego go, if you're willing to choke that down and tell an honest story, and yes, like Lugas, tell the tell the crazy, courageous, heroic stories because he's got more of those than he could even put in a book. But at the same time, balance it with truth and honesty. Your credibility is unchallenged, and that's that, that's what that's what a reader wants. That's what an audience wants. Is just tell me the truth, man. When you got it wrong, it's okay to say, man, I screwed this up. If I had to do it over again, I would do it different. But these are the choices I made, and they were wrong. Right. And I'm excited to look for the book. And I know last time you were on, Jay, we talked about your uh, Den of Thieves, your movie work, your consult consultation. And so when I had uh, Lou on the show, I was talking to him, like, I can't wait to finally see him do a, a movie role. Or even if you guys, I'm always surprised a show like, or like somebody like Netflix or HBO, like, where's the proper story on undercover work or something that's always either movies or something that's way too like Hollywood produced like where's the real nitty gritty and it'll be kind of cool to see people like yourselves actually work on a show like that where it's like we could do something really really cool here you know I'll tell you what I'm so excited for, for Lou's book to come out to the public and for people to read it and to see where it's going to go because it, it is movie worthy um, but Man, you're going to have a really tough time to find an actor that can play Lou Velozzi, right? You might be able to find, you know, you might be able to hire Joe Manginello because they look the same and they like they're big, handsome guys. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. I don't care what actor you plug into Lou Velozzi's movie. He is going to be pretending, faking to be someone who actually lived it and did it, that's really hard to do. It's really hard to, to, to convey that with authenticity because there's only one Lou Velozzi, man. If you really want to do it right, Lou Velozzi needs to star in the Lou Velozzi movie. Man, about that. I tell you what, just on a serious note uh, to what Bird said, after he, after he gave me advice and, uh, you know, I pretty much just written down like in almost a police report form, the story of these storefronts. And, you know, after, you know, I had, already, I had read Bird's book, 
years back. And then uh, after talking to him, what, how I arranged it was to tell, I told the story of the professional success that I had with these operations. Okay. You know, I purchased, I purchased over a thousand guns in an undercover capacity, which I'm proud of. All right. Took them off the street. They were crime guns. Um, I made a ton of mistakes during that time. I made a ton of mistakes. Um, and all those mistakes, they all came to light, uh, you know, in the OIG investigation at the end of my career. Um, but they not only professional mistakes, but personal mistakes. And I didn't hide it. You know, I put it all in there. I said it matter of factly. Uh, it's a story about great professional success with, a, you know, with a bunch of failures and, and a, a huge personal failure in there. Um, and, and it's kind of, it's a wild ride. Uh, and it's not a happy ending for sure. Uh, but I'm here talking about it, right? So it can't be too bad, you know? And, and thanks to Jay, uh, thanks to the, you know, the Narcos guys, I, I got everything organized. We got it together and finally it'll be out, man. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Love it. With, like I said earlier, with, with every new book, I think it elevates. And so if you, if you go back in history, you know, Joe Pistone wrote, Donnie Brasco, yes. and we, we, we were fascinated by with it, and, and we still are, and with the film and the book. Um, Billy Queen wrote Under and Alone. Uh, Jackie Garcia wrote The Making of Jack Falcon. Uh, the Narcos Boys, uh, Pena and Murphy, wrote their story. Um, but now with Storefront coming out, like taking examples and learning from the process of writing those books, Lou has written the new definitive undercover book. Now, maybe somewhere down the road, someone will write uh, another one, but here's the thing. The end game, the time has run out on undercover work. There's not a whole lot of Lou Velozzi's out there left to tell that story. He's like, you know, on the back end of this. And, you know, like there's an F. Scott Fitzgerald quote that says, show me a hero and I will write you a tragedy. Right. And almost all these stories start with an alpha dog hero and they end up tragically um and man, i'll tell you what as an audience as as reading a book or going to a movie those are compelling stories because they're authentic and they're true and and we want to see them we want to read those stories we want to see them on film you know john it really it is a small club when you're talking about you know, these, these undercover authors, right? Jay Dobbins, Billy Queen, Jack Garcia, the Narcos guys, Joe Pistone. And I'm not in the club yet. I'm hoping, uh, you know, Storefront's going to put me in the club. Right. That's no, it's, and I think it's important that people read these books to truly understand the, the work that you men have done um, to get rid of these bad people, these bad guys. And I think it's, it's super important. I'm really looking forward to the book. Um, before I let you guys go, obviously, Jay, I know you're not much on social media, uh, but your books are everywhere, whether it's Amazon, bookstores. Uh, Lou, I know you're on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you have a website. Uh, your book will be everywhere. I know you just started promoting it on uh, Amazon, stuff like that. But uh, if people want to find your books, obviously, where can they do that? Do you want to send them to a certain area? Um, stuff like that. You know, I've had my day in the sun. I've enjoyed it. Um, 
I'm going to defer on promoting my books and say, go buy Storefront. It is the new definitive story, true, authentic, real, personal, heartbreaking, inspiring. Go get it, go read it, and then, you know, get in line behind me in the little closing fan club. Love it. Bert, thank you so much, brother. Um, John, it's, uh, it's right now it's available for pre-order on Amazon and I'm going to send you that link. Uh, and if you could put yes. it up, that would be awesome. Yep. No, awesome. And uh, again, thank you gentlemen for this. And uh, uh, look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Much love you guys. Thank you. Thank God bless. Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week.